Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, It's a phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing Lindsay Mustaine. This is part two of a two-part interview. In the first interview, we talk about Lindsay going from being Amazon's it girl to ayahuasca. And in this episode, we're going to talk about Lindsay's enthusiasm for human beings at the highest level and overcoming tremendous adversity. Lindsay, welcome. Oh my God. I literally watched your Facebook live a couple more times. Oh, you did. You got to watch me talk about it. Oh, that was hardcore for me to share everything. So were you surprised? I admire that so much. Really? Like people who can discuss the undiscussable. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I struggled with telling that story, you know, this whole time, do you want me to give back story for anybody who's listening? So, yeah. So one year ago, I mean, it's so fresh. Like the fact that you have healed enough to talk about this is another thing that is just so remarkable. I felt really called to tell the story and, you know, I had been banned already on Facebook for sharing about, you know, how human resources is an abomination. It should be burned to the ground, which I think you can tune in for my previous podcast episode. And I finally came out of that being banned thing. And I was like, I'm back (laughs) just in time to go back, like time transport one year ago, sitting across from the person who murdered my brother so very brutally. And that was, and continues to be the most difficult experience of my life. I think actually the getting out and saying the things I needed to do, because I had to make a victim impact statement inside of the court to uh, tell everybody what, what my, the impact had been on me. That was probably the hardest thing out side of actually going through the grief and loss of losing my brother. So I had never actually known anybody who'd been murdered like that. That was like a phenomenon that happened on, you know, snapped or whatever on the lifetime channel. It was, it was never something that I ever thought would be a part of my life or my existence that I mean, it's just, it blows me away that, you know, I have like a victim's unit coordinator. I'm considered a victim of this crime. And so I always talk about being a survivor now because I can't handle that victim mentality. It was a really hard label. And after my brother was, you know, he was very, very tragically killed. He was stabbed 104 times. The person who killed him admitted guilt immediately and was incarcerated that night. But in the middle of all that, like the pandemic happened, we went through this process where somebody suffered very, like she suffers from very extreme mental illness and going through the process of trying to find out whether somebody is suitable to stand trial was, you know, like a big process. And then in the middle of it, they canceled the trial. (laughs) because of the pandemic. And they said, it's just off the books. And they didn't say like to be rescheduled. 
they said cancel. So I've had to fly in the middle of the pandemic and go and testify. And I did it in court to the point where I actually asked if I could remove my mask so I could speak. I was far enough away from everybody just so that we knew uh, to be able to speak clearly and articulate the message that I had. And so I came on live to talk about that timeline, like going back and what it was like a year ago where I did the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. Um, Cause how do you, in the course of this, like, how do you, I struggle. I, I'm a writer. <laughs> I'm a writer. That's my thing. Like being able to speak and articulate things. But this like kept me so like closed up for so long that when I had to write it and I, I'd been thinking about it because I knew I had to write it for about just a couple months after it happened. So it happened in May of 2019. My brother was tragically murdered on my daughter's fifth birthday. Talk about terrible timing. And when I got the phone call, I thought I knew somebody had died. I just knew that. But the fact that it was my brother, that it had been so tragic. I mean, I was, I think I described it as like, I was like a wounded animal and I just collapsed on the ground howling. And when the kid, father of my children said, what, what happened? I said, it's my brother. He's been murdered. He was stabbed to death. I said it right in front of my kids who are both like five and six at the time. So just babies. And I watched them go through their own. Like, I mean, I wouldn't recommend that. I don't think anybody's prepared to probably be that, but I judged myself pretty harshly that I couldn't keep it together, but you know, you never have that opportunity. And so I watched me collapse and then I can see my kids and I'm calling my best friend and my friend telling them to draw pictures to their favorite uncle in heaven and just a way to do that. And then my whole life, like I had to figure out how to, how do you claim a body? How do you deal with a crime screen? He was murdered at his own home and the kind of force that happened for that. Like they said it was the equivalent. I mean, I have some very visceral images of the VA specifically showing me the kind of force that would be required to commit a hundred stab wounds. And it wasn't like some big burly dude. It was a really young, petite girl. And I say girl, cause she was 18. She was just she was really young. Yeah. It was, it's pretty salacious. I spent a lot of time trying to make sure that my brother's memory, I mean, I think we all have things that we wouldn't be necessarily proud of, but to be skewered when you're not even there to defend yourself. I spent a lot of time just protecting because my brother was the victim, the true victim. I mean, his, he lost his life and he had no one there to defend it. So I actually just a few months after about, well, I should say six months after I went to the DA and I said, I want a plea bargain. I don't want to put the only people left really are my mom and I <laughs> like, there's nobody else. You know, he doesn't have any dependents. It's just us that's really left. And that when you look at it, it looks really awful. I mean, I was it, like the things I said on the, uh, I got, you know, cornered by the newspaper reporter. They tried to, and they twisted my statements. And I realized like, if it bleeds, it leaves. That's so true. And I don't listen to the news at all now. <laughs> like I'm really clear about where I listen and get my information sources because they manipulated everything that I said to make it sound like I said really mean things about him. And then after that, I never spoke to the media again. The only time that they quoted me was when I did this victim impact statement, but I told him it, you know, I want to, I want to plea bargain because I don't want my mother to go through this because of how tragic it was to the point where I didn't talk about this, but the murder was actually on camera. <laughs> they have actual, I know, right? What? One of the last things my brother did was he was installing cameras inside of his home with a Google home system. And so there was oh, no, like the evidence. My God. I mean, how horrific, I feel like I say this and I kind of dissociate from telling the story because when you think about it, about how horrific it is, 
we saw it. We could hear it. I chose not to hear it. I chose not to, to indulge in any of that. I tried really hard to avoid everything with it. If I'm honest, because I can't even handle like horror stories, like fake ones, much less like a real story and somebody that I actually loved. And so I said, I don't want that to go through. I don't want, to, I didn't tell my mom for a long time. Cause I, how do you tell somebody like, Hey, this is like, I have a little boy. I have a little boy. Like I was a little more removed because my brother was an adult and he was not my child. He was my brother. And so, but just the thought of having that to go through, that was just so freaking hard. So that's what I asked for was a plea bargain. She did plead guilty to second degree homicide. So it wasn't intentional, but she was found not guilty by reason of mental defect or um, insanity. And so insanity is not a diagnosis from a psychology perspective. It's done from the legal system, which says kind of the rule of thumb is if there's a police officer next to you, would you have still conducted that crime knowing because you wouldn't have any regard for the consequences? That's kind of the rule of thumb, but we had to have have like, I think it was two or three different experts go through and evaluate this. I mean, I'm going to tell you that I had kind of like true crime stories. I really liked those back in the day. Like for some reason, I really liked those, but they really helped me. Like I knew to have a crime scene cleanup before I got to there. Like I, I knew how to file for most things. And I also had a, a pretty intense experience with my brother and really his soul, if I'm honest. So I had to do all these things in order to prepare for it. And so when she was found not reason, not guilty by reason of insanity, which is so popularized, it's like 0.25% of all murder cases are found to have that. The percentage of people who have like stab wounds where the numbers in the three digits, it's, it's really, really rare. Like, so I kept saying I've won like the worst possible odds of the most horrific lottery there ever existed. And I mean, I gotta tell you something because I haven't told anybody yet. I haven't told anyone this, but they just called me to tell me that she's filed for conditional release. What? Uh, it's been one year. It's been one year and they get time for credit served, which had been a little over a year, but yeah, already. And so, uh, it's so hard. I think I say like to be a prison reform, like believe in that and believe that people should be rehabilitated and that like imprisoning people is actually not a way not a good use of our money or does anything for society. Like we, there's a different way, like the Amish have it kind of pretty, pretty well locked in on how to rehabilitate somebody, believe it or not to do that. And then to also be like, where's justice. And I, I, there is no justice. There's only people who are broken afterwards. That's, that's what I've learned. And so I I'm still reeling from that and that conversation. So I have a, I have a court date in October where I have to show up and do this again. After saying like, I, the, one of the things I requested when I gave my victim impact statements, I want to know what happens. And so to get called back in and to have to do it so quickly, apparently that's very rare to ask for this already. And I was like, of course it is because we don't get it easy. We don't get an easy pass at some point. I thought, you know, when they came back in the sentence, I didn't ask for anything in particular, except for, I wanted no one else to ever be unsafe because of this person. And I wanted there to be monitoring of them. And so that's really all I asked for, because I am not judge or jury. It's not my job. One of the things I said in that statement was I, I really walked through what it was like, the same experience of what it was like for me, what it was like for my children, some of the emotional issues that my daughter in particular has. The day my brother died, I don't actually have it on his marker because I don't want my daughter to associate her birthday and his life. Because really, it's not like the start of your life and the end of your life that matters. It's that little dash in between. Like that's, it's not the day. So I didn't feel like that was really important. And so I, I, when I went into that, like I, 
I said, you know, here's the story of what happened. And then here's the story, what it was like for my mother, what it was like, cause my mom, not, she didn't just lose her son. She also lost the love of her life. Her husband, my father, when she was close to my age, you know, she, she was really young, lost him tragically to cancer and then had to raise two children on their own, which is not easy for anybody. And it wasn't perfect, but it was the best she could do. And so to have to go through that and explain kind of what it was like for her and then what it was like for me every day, because there, I have dreams, intense visions and things where I can talk to my brother and it's just snatched away. And I talk about like, we, we love him every day. We miss him every day. We cry nearly every day, you know, like we mourn every day. And that's, that's not something that will ever go away. It doesn't matter if I still feel really connected to my brother. You don't, I will never hug him again. I will never, I will never hold his children. It is just me. So I, I kind of, my brother was like the closest person in the world to me, um, as it turns out. And I didn't know it until after he was gone, which is very heartbreaking to find that out because I wasn't a very good sibling at that point. And so I deal with a lot of guilt around that, but also knowing that I did the very best I could. And I, I'm really pleased with how is please is probably not the right word. I'm satisfied with how things turned out that I did right by my brother, that I honored him and that he had, you know, he had a beautiful service and he, he had a lot of people who really loved him. And, you know, the person he would want this person to be rehabilitated. He does want this person to be rehabilitated. He wants, he knows that, you know, she's not evil there. She was just very mentally ill. And I think that's where we get into that idea of like punitive punishment where like, you know, an eye for an eye. So, you know, I walked out and I said, the last thing I said in that victim impact statement was that I forgive you. I don't forget. I won't ever forget. I can never forget but I forgive you. And that was the gift that having this really divine experience with my brother, because he became part of something that I could access and talk to after this. So I talk about a lot of the spiritual side of what I do now in my life, because I had a whole other, you know, out of this body kind of experience. I forgive you. I forgive you. And that there was peace that was given. And, and it doesn't mean that I'm not, in fact, if I would tell you the person I was most angry was with my brother for leaving me here to deal with the crap afterwards. We just closed his court case for his estate this last month. I feel like I'm just like back to back in these, go back to these moments, these flashbacks. I'm just, I'm very thankful that I, I didn't feel anger and hate because hate is like trying to drink poison and hoping the other person will die. It does nothing for anybody. So when I walked out of there, you know, they said, you have 15 years. That's what you, we have inside of a mental health institution. And she would never be able to return back to where she was from. And I thought that I felt satisfied. Satisfied is the best word I can come up with. Like it was adequate. And I felt like I had won as much as you possibly could. Like I did the very best I could. I showed up, I spoke, I When I gave my victim impact statement and someday I'll be brave enough to read it, but I made everyone in the courtroom cry, everyone to the point that the defense asked for a recess immediately after I gave my statement and I didn't do anything with anger, which I think is actually what helped. Like I I chose to say, I forgive you, which is not easy. You know, a lot of times, and I see a lot of people, even some of the social justice things are happening where people have been tragically killed and even if they are totally right, the things are so awful, they have less success when people come with anger. And so I think that was a really big gift that we were able to protect people. And that's really what I think is we're protecting the public for people who are, or this person in particular, who's very ill. My brother wasn't just like killed with any knife. It was a steak knife and a pair of scissors. So I'm like, I just don't want her to ever have a pair of scissors or steak knife. Like 
pretty much ever. That's it's, it is very, very sad. So, so yeah, that one thing that you said that really stands out in my mind is that she was just a scared little girl, just like you. One of the things that I really, I'm very, very thankful for the piece I had, because it allowed me to look at it when you're so blinded with anger, it's really hard to be objective. And so I was able to step away from the situation and I don't, my mom wasn't able to do that, you know, and that's not her job. I was able to step away from the situation and think if this was my child, what would I do? What would I advocate for them? Because I didn't lose the fact like this, this is an actual human being. Thank God, especially for those that are, are prosecuted unfairly. Thank God there's a way for these people to defend you. And like, that's, that's the system of the court is you're guilty until, or you're in sometimes feels like that, but innocent until proven guilty. And so I thought about what moves would we make? What, what would I do? And so like, I knew that I wanted to file for a plea bargain long before they ever came and said anything. I knew that because I thought based on everything here, my best interest would be served through that, not actually prosecuting, even though my ego would have loved to say, yeah, like lock her up forever. Like let's throw the book at her. And that, I mean, that's, at one point I felt like that because there was, I didn't know what had happened. And there was more information that came through some of my experiences and the things that she said. And, and it just turned out for that. She was just really, really ill. And so I listened to the defense and what happened there was when I gave that victim impact statement, she looked at me the entire time when they pulled me in afterwards, they said, they've never seen a defendant ever do that. She never lost her eye contact with me. So I spent a lot of time talking to the judge because I wasn't allowed to address her personally, but she looked in my eyes. And when I looked back, I mean, I felt scared to see her. I was, it's the first time I'd ever seen her besides the pictures that were her mug shots. I was scared to see her. And when I looked looked in her eyes. I didn't see somebody who was evil. I didn't see like the devil or whatever you want to imagine some dark force. I saw a girl who wanted to hear what I had to say. I saw a girl who like her eyes were wide and the things that the defense had talked about later, I saw myself in her. I saw in my eyes, I saw a scared little girl and she's 18. She is, well, she's 19 now, but she was just a baby. She was just a baby and she, her whole life is gone. And when I looked behind her, I saw her family and I didn't see like the parents of my, the killer. I saw a family that had been destroyed. All of us had been. And so there was no winner. There's no like, there's no justice. I hate that term when I think about it. Like what's fair is maybe the best. And I don't even think fair is probably a good one, but fair is the closest one you could do as far as the example of what comes out of it. But I just looked at her and I felt more at peace after that, being able to say, I forgive you. I forgive you. And I said, I won't forget. I just can't forget. In fact, one of my family members, they walked out and I said, they said, I agree with everything you said, except for that part. That was the part where I'm like, we're supposed to be good Christians in this family. And I don't really identify as Christian. Christian. I really like Jesus. I think he's an amazing guy, but not necessarily where I'm going to hang my hat on. I feel like there was a lot of people who've been really amazing in the world. And Jesus was, you know, amazing ascended master is what I would call him a teacher, but there were some ideals that have been preached through Christianity and forgiveness is one of them to turn the other cheek when you can, when you're slapped across it, right. Or to not pluck the sawdust out of one's eye when you cannot see the plank in your own or judge not lest you be judged. Also, I taught Sunday school. So I, I know a little bit about this. And so I, I had to choose to a lot of the values that I had as a child, very innocent Sunday school kind of values were the things that I ended up using. Cause those were really good guidelines for life. So I say like my faith, my faith is in spirit and in humanity. I don't believe the world is evil. And that same vein, I can still look at this and say, I do hope that you get rehabilitated. I do not think that you could have done it in two years. I do not think in the last time when you, um, this person had in particular had some other mental health issues that had taken him out of prison to another, like a 
psychiatric place. That's not my business to talk about in particular, but I know that like, if that's the case, I wouldn't be trusting like a person, any capacity that had hurt somebody to be out in the public. And so I'm going to hope that, that this is not something I heard that I have, I could do it annually. So I'm really not looking forward to that now that I know that she knows she can pull this, you know, request for herself. I'm not looking forward to doing that, but I will continue to show up and tell my truth and not do it in a way that's hurtful or hateful, but to just say we were just here. And it's really hard to say that in 14 months from the extreme of the example that the community is safe and that there has been true rehabilitation. And let me tell you again, why this has been so painful for me. So that is what I am going to do. And it's the first time I've actually talked about it. Now, did she know your brother? She did. They were dating. This is where like, I don't think that I love my brother, but I don't know that he was a really good partner to her. I don't think he was in any way, like an extreme that deserved nothing, nothing in the world, no matter how horrible you were to somebody deserves that kind of response. There's no eye for an eye, but there was nothing even close. Right. Like, but I do think that my brother didn't allow her to be who she really wanted to be. And that was very painful. And I think that was a systemic issue that had faced her her whole life. And I believe, and I don't know, have proof of this, that she suffered a lot of abuse from some people that weren't even allowed to be in the courtroom with her. And so, you know, he was just the end of the line, but I don't know if you've heard of like the bus stop theory. And this was something that somebody shared with me and it just really resonated with my soul. You know, whatever you believe in, I'm not here to dispute that. I want you to choose what's, you know, in your heart and your soul at your highest self, but the bus stop theory kind of says, when you're going down to earth, you've chosen your degree of difficulty. And it says, what is it that my soul needs to learn, which might be forgiveness, uh, might be forgiveness of myself, or I need to have some sort of experience. And one person will be like, well, I need to learn that lesson. So I will be willing to be the person that this happens to. And the other person will say, well, I'm the person who's willing to give you that experience, meaning that something extreme can happen. And for whatever reason, that really gave me a lot of peace. And so I feel like the messages I've gotten since then was that my brother knew that this would happen. He liked it wasn't a, that he knew it would happen, that it was part of both of our paths to experience it. It was part of her path and her soul to be another part of that experience. And that's probably not going to sit well with everybody, but for whatever reason that really, really resonated with me. And I felt like that was really true. And so I, I have sought out a lot of spiritual mentors and guidance since then, and they've validated some of these feelings. And so, you know, whether you believe in it or not, to be honest, it doesn't matter to me. It's what I believe in my heart. And you should do the same thing. Whoever's listening to this. That's what I really believe is that it was meant to happen. It was part of my path. And that's when I talk about like being human, being human is like the whole thing I'm trying to do. And I'm trying to talk about how we treat people, like treating them with respect and with love. You know, I feel like I've had to experience the extremes of that, of the absence of that in order to be more compassionate, to be more empathetic, to be more of an advocate for humanity and to still believe in the best in others, even when you've seen the very darkest evil of what appears in the world. To be able to do that, I think is, is the gift that I was given. And I believe that that was why my experiences have led to this moment in my life. And so it is hard for me to talk about. And so I always say life is really short. I I mean, I know it better than anybody. You have no idea how long it is. So let's do something with the life and the breaths that you have left in your body. I am completely blown away by you. I mean, the way that you can articulate that is going to help people. It's, it's hard because I think it's really uncomfortable for people. I've suffered other things. Like I was sexually assaulted and, um, you know, my, my dad passed away really tragically after suffering long-term unemployment. And then my brother being murdered. There's a point where you realize you are completely unbreakable. (laughs) Like there's nothing where I'm like, 
you can hand me whatever now. And I don't know how not to survive. What I do know how is how to count my blessings. That's sometimes some people don't have that gift. They're poisoned by the hate of these things. But I really think that it was necessary for me to become the person who I am today. And so it is hard when I talk about it, people, people are going to listen. They're going to be triggered and, and that's okay. In fact, a lot of times the triggers that I've experienced help me grow. And there's going to be people who are going to hate what I have to say. And that's okay. I bless and release you and you can do the same for me. <laughs> but I lost a lot of people who I thought cared about me afterwards. One of my best friends, she's like, I just didn't know what to say. And I'm like, so anybody who's listening, I'm just going to give you the lesson to le- like for death. If you know somebody who's lost somebody, just know that they have no idea what they're doing either. They have no idea. They are just alone and they feel like nobody cares or understands. And we tend to want to brush it over. You know, like a lost child is very, very hard. One of my cousins lost their 15 month old daughter. And, you know, I think about her all the time and that person is still a soul. That person is still part of their life. That's still part of someone's like their mother gave birth to them. It is disrespectful to ignore that pain. It is so disrespectful. I have a friend and she says, life is always working for you. It always in always. And it's sometimes hard to see that because I would never, and I think I said this even in your group, you asked like, would you not do something, right? That was the question. And I said, I don't know that I would undo anything because well, one loss would happen regardless. So whether I lost them now or before, but I'm also incredibly grateful for the experience. I wouldn't recommend it like recreationally, but there was a gift and there's a gift in any kind of trauma. And my counselor, even she said, the reason why I work with people who go through trauma is that they always come up better on the other side if they're willing to do the work. And so one of the things I find is people who don't do the work, they're the ones who tend to self-destruct. And so if you can find a way where you stop becoming the victim and you choose to be the survivor of your story, you do the work to heal yourself. There's just something that's really powerful that comes out of that. You said that a lot of your friends do energy work and are working on up-leveling. Can you talk about that a little bit? I really realized in all this loss and things that I've had, and I think everybody has had this intuitive hit. Something has happened in their life and they knew what the answer was or they went against it. And that's another painful way to learn it. You have access to way more information than what is tangible. Matter is not what actually happens. You have to like, be what you want before you can have it. There are going to be people, and I've, especially on LinkedIn, I think I asked a question about crystals the other day. And I said, what if you use crystals? And people were like, one person goes, show me the science. And I was like, nobody needs that kind of negativity. So I just blocked them because I'm like, like, I cannot help you if you're not even willing to open your mind to it. And I'm going to tell you why he was wrong. And somebody said, I don't practice Santeria either. <laughs> And so, and I said, it does not matter whether you believe me or not, because if you look in your uh, computer or your watch, it might even say quartz watch right on here. Quartz is a type of crystal folks, but we have beliefs about what is real. And so that's a very, it's a very old school mentality. So for me, I'm totally the black sheep of my family and I'm totally good with it because I have a life much better than most of them. And I really believe it belongs in energy. So if I were to talk about these, there are two real energies that reside inside of us. And you can think of them as yin and yang. That's what they represent is the masculine and the feminine. We are so caught up in the masculine, which is the do, what checklist, what are we going to go take an action on? How do we get the result? But there's also this whole other side, which is the feminine energy. And the feminine energy is about the embodiment of what it is. So like, I don't think of the feminine as being mother earth or your mothering instinct. Do we ever with a baby that's born and go, okay, your action plan today is you know, you have a little one, you know, you have lots of little ones. So I should say, (laughs) 
that's not their job. Our job is to grow them, to nurture them, to support them. And that's the other piece. And this is where I talk about some of the, the leadership that happens for inside of organizations. So focused on the masculine energy, like what can you do for me? And what have you done for me lately? And I'm like, why don't we remember they're human beings? And they have talents that can be nurtured, that can be grown, that can be sought out to become the thing. We just neglected who they are at their soul level. And I'm going to be really honest. This is what the hell's happening. You want to watch why people are being like leaving. It's I call it the employee exodus. It's not the great resignation. It's the employee exodus. People want to be in business for themselves because we neglected the whole part where they have a soul. And they're not just cogs and machines that are there to build money. That's the shift. And so when I talk about energy work, I'm watching like a lot of my fellow entrepreneurs, um, a lot of my friends, and I even have a chief spiritual advisor now. Like I don't actually invest in business coaching anymore. I've paid $150,000 for business coaching in my life. And I should say in my life, in my business, I've only been around for four years. So a lot of money, way more than my college education. And the thing that's gotten me the best results is what I talked about energy because healing the wounds that we have inside of ourselves and the things like that create us make us small. So I spend a lot of time working with chakra systems. I spend a lot of time with working Reiki and there's another kind of new energetic technology called um, the awakened bliss codes is something else I work with. I use crystals. I use the law of attraction. I use so I use divination, which sounds like something from Harry Potter. Cause it is, but it was before then like things like tarot cards. Cause I believe the universe is always giving us signs. And I know that I'll tell you that I saw the number three, 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 the entire time that I was going through my brother, everything with it. And so I knew if I was taking the wrong step or the right step, if I saw the number and I would trust my true intuition and not what I knew, like what would make my ego feel better, but what was right for him because I could watch it and I could see it in the signs. And so the more I went into this and I has since I talked about ayahuasca in the last call, I, I needed some proof. Cause guess what? I am born of this world of the masculine energy. What give me tangible proof that I am not insane. And I went and I sat with ayahuasca and I got to see, you know, the nature of the universe and everything I had thought she showed me to the point where I definitely want to go sit with her again. And I'll, I'll even tell you another story to follow up on that. I sat in this um, session and I felt before I took a single, well, one, you clear your body. I spent a lot of time doing energy healing and I had um, integration prep that I did beforehand. And I mean, I didn't eat animal products. I didn't eat salt like or oils. Like you go through pretty extreme. It's called dieta to do that beforehand to set it. If you really want to get the good results. And I, before I even took ayahuasca, before I took her, I could feel the energy of the souls who had ever loved me. I felt like I had a chorus behind me is the best way to describe it. And when I was sitting there, I kept hearing the name Matthew, Matthew. And I was like, I don't even know a Matthew. Like I, I was trying to figure out like who the heck is Matthew. And one of the things I did right after my brother died is I just needed, like, I was, I heard him shout into my brain. That is not me. I heard him shout in that brain when I was visualizing, I could see the blood on the wall that was actually in his house. I could see it. And it was, I was just being pulled in this really dark place. And he shouted, that's not me. Stop looking at my blood and thinking that's actually my soul. It's not, I'm still here. I'm with you. Like get out of your own head. And my brother talks to me very much like he does, like he did in the body, which is like very sarcastic. He's kind of a smart ass if I'm honest. And so I love that he still is, but I kept hearing like Matthew, Matthew, Matthew. And I was like, who the hell's Matthew? So I asked, I asked the assistants, I asked people around, I'm like, do you know Matthew? Like where the heck it is? And then I talked to earlier this year, I talked to a psychic and a channeler and she in particular deals with that. And she said, there's somebody here. It was my brother, which I wasn't surprised because I can hear him. I always say here because he's 
almost always here in my brain. Like, I don't know, brain or presence is right here. And I said, <laughs> this is getting to be so weird, guys. I know, <laughs> but I'm just going to talk about it because it's it, the more I neglect it, the more I'm like, I'm supposed to talk about it. So I said, do you have a message for my mom? My mom is still very, very hurt. One of the things she really worried, you know, the Bible says you do bad, you go to hell. I'm just going to give you my little two seconds spiel on hell. Your mother, would you ever go put your hand, your child's hand on the stove, even for one second on purpose? No. So if we are children of God, would you think that you would internally damn your child for to burn forever? in agony. It is no way. Yeah. I was like, that is not the God that I believe exists. I don't believe in, I don't believe in hell. I believe that there's evil. I think all of us have good and evil. I talked a little bit about this. We all have good things and we're all experiencing things that are bad. And it's experientially, we're trying to live through this world. So I have a really big, hard time with that, that concept. Like the idea that my dad never went to church is not a reason why he would be in hell. He was a good person like that. There's some really bad people in church. Okay. Like that's not an all ass. My mom worried my brother went to hell. He went to hell. And in a very, very dark scenario, I'm going to tell you what happened to him actually. But I was like, Matthew, Matthew. And then she stopped and she said, she's talking to him and she goes, Matthew. And she goes, do you, do you know a Matthew? And I sat there and I went, you are kidding me. And she, I was like, I have heard Matthew for the last few months. And this is the weird part. Like I have goosebumps right now. Like I was like, I didn't have any idea. And I even asked my boyfriend and he's like, yeah, I remember you asking his brother's name is Matthew. And he's like, that's not even his real name. It's his middle name. So it's not him. So it wasn't just me. And I didn't come up with this on my own. Like I needed, I was like, I'm not crazy. I mean, I am a little crazy. Let's be really clear. I am a little crazy enough to make it fun. But I did that. And she goes, Matthew 316. And I was like, like, I was like, John 316. She's like, no, Matthew 316. I was like, it sounds like a Bible verse, right? Like, it sounds like that. And she's like, let's see what it says. I'm going to read it to you. It said, Jesus, when he was baptized, went up directly from the water and behold, the heavens were opened unto him. He saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and coming on him. And it says lightning, lightning was coming on him. And I was like, wow. And I had a sense, like one of the things that was a uh, really painful. And before I did any of the hallucinogenic stuff, I, I saw this stuff. I saw what, how my, I knew my brother, how he died. I knew how his face, his body was facing. I knew everything. He was very, very freaky. And I knew that he did not lose his vision that he died with his eyes open. And I didn't see him that way. I just knew that in reality, they listened to him die for eight minutes on that video eight minutes of him suffering and bleeding out. And I knew that he was not in pain. I knew that. And he didn't go to hell. So it was okay. So I say that I can say that with a lot of like non-emotionality because like, he's right here with me right now. Like he's here with me right now, like protecting me. And she said to me, the channeler, the psychic said, he's giving you this message to tell your mother because she will not hear it from any other source other than the Bible. But this is what it was like with his soul. When he was dying and he looked up, he could see the heaven opened up for him and his soul became light. And what she says, she could see his soul ascending into heaven. And that is what that verse was for. I just got goosebumps everywhere. Like these little things add up and, you know, it's, you faith doesn't have science behind it. I get that. But there's some things where there's a point where coincidence, it's no longer coincidence. It's knowing And so I had to tell my mom this story and I'm sure she thought I was crazy, but I said, mom, you know, I've had this experience and I'm considered clairvoyant because of the experience I have, because I can hear things and I know things. And I can some, I, when I was really young, I could see things. And these are the part of the energy healing that I'm working on. 
And it's why in particular, let me be really clear. It's why my programs work so well. Wow. I can tap into a whole other knowledge base that nobody knows about. And that's why, like why I'm really good at what I do. And I really struggled to articulate that. And so I don't tell people, I don't tell people what it is. I'm just like, it's magic. I don't feel like you struggle to articulate anything. (laughs) That makes me feel better. Cause I'm like, uh, let me just tell you, there's a little magic infused in here. And I had somebody who joined me and he's like, this is why I joined just because you do all this stuff. I was shocked. And I said, well, I have a message for you from Brent. And I said, and I read the, the, the verse to her and she said, that was exactly what I needed. <laughs> that was exactly what I needed. She just needed somebody to tell her, her son was a burning in hell and he's not, you know, like he's, he's like smiling right now. Like he's pretty proud of himself, honestly. So my mom said, you know, she struggles because this fear, you know, that things, something's wrong, you know, as you did a bad job of protecting him and all these other things and stories that you tell yourself, you know, like alleviated. And she said she would have moments where she'd go, well, at least he's okay. And then she'd be like, wait. And I go back into that fear-based and the mentality of the programming that we were given. Cause if you think that that's all, there's only, you know, go to hell or, you know, give 10% and then you get to go to heaven. If you get baptized, if those are the only two options, then like this window is pretty small. So likely to be here. If you give somebody a different chance when she knows that, like, that's why we feel that safety, like why we know that things are going to be okay. You know, she was able to get that now and I'm sure it'll still come up. And there's still the point where we go back to the programming and the fear, but yeah, this is not what I anticipated talking about today. (laughs) That's really deep though. I'm Like, I feel like it's such a blessing that you were the one to give her that. I was surprised. I mean, I'll be honest. I called her and I just said, I have a message for you. And then she, she's like texted. And I said, I need you to just hear it. And then we had that, like, she told me, I said, well, you know, I have this, like, I have these things. And I told her and she's like, I know that. And I said, well, how I got this was through a a psychic medium, but that I told you that I can talk to Brent. And what's funny is they've never, ever like freaked out about me talking to Brent. So I want to ask you one more thing. And it's kind of like back to the whole like craziness that you've learned through going to court. What was that 250 page report? Oh, so I was talking about in order to get the life insurance, you had to prove that they were dead. I laugh because it's just like, it's either laugh or cry. And so you'll find me laughing most of the time versus crying in order to file to get. So my mom didn't really have the money and access to do a lot of the, it's very expensive to, to have a funeral. Um, and I was like, well, you know, Brent had life insurance and I, he had even talked to me at um, my, at my aunt's and he's, he told me he had upgraded his life insurance. Like, and that he's like, you and mom. And I, I remember thinking, this is years ago. And I'm like, whatever, you know, like, I don't need to know that. I don't even know why I'm on the list. It's not even, I don't even know why you're telling me all these things really helped if I'm really honest. So what I will say is if look, first off for anybody who's listening, you are going to die. That is no like death and taxes people. That's all you got. Please put a beneficiary on your life insurance. Okay. So that is the message for this one because he didn't have a beneficiary. It said, uh, goes to a state because I couldn't prove he was dead, even though he was, uh, because the cause of death was undetermined. They weren't sure, like, obviously it looked like he bled to death, but they didn't know if like there was alcohol or drugs involved, neither of which came back, but drug tests take somewhere between six and 12 weeks, the autopsy and the proof of that comes back. So what, what was in there was the death certificate that said pending and then the test results. And then it had the autopsy of which, I mean, 
you know, like probably the most disturbing thing was getting to see 104 different stab wounds on where's location of his body, the depth of it, how much like parts of his body weighed, like just to see like they the count that. I didn't know that. Like they weigh your brain, they weigh you all of it. I had no idea. Like I had to go and get my, I had to claim my brother's body in order to like, I had to, I, I didn't have to do it with him. Thank God the, the police officer was able to identify him for me. So I didn't have to do that, but I, I had to do all these things. So I, that was like, I don't know, 15 pages. So an autopsy typically isn't that long because you don't have that many organs, but there's a hundred stab wounds. So I knew like for which stab wounds killed him, you know, like, Oh my God, 11 centimeters to the heart from the back, all the things, in fact, really the autopsy, all the things I had imagined in it of what I could see it happen in my mind was proved out through the stab wounds. So that's why I know how how it happened. So the report was over 200 pages and that took weeks. So by the time that I finally was able to get this stuff submitted, I mean, it was months down the line before we could get it because he was, you know, it was accidental death. So we kept him the AD and D accidental death and dismemberment policy. So there was all this other proof we needed. And I'll just say like, they did not do a lot of helping you out here. Like they're like, we're so sorry for your loss, but here's all the bullshit you're going to need to go through in order to get to it. It, it was very, very hard. And uh, one of the worst things. So just put a beneficiary on your people, like, you know, going through court. So anybody who has any kind of assets, please have not just a will, please have a trust and a will. Like don't, I'm not a, advisor, but I'm just going to tell you what it was like. But the big thing is if you have life insurance, just please put your beneficiary on it. That's all you got to do. Otherwise it has to go through the court. Now my brother died in May of 2019. We settled his estate in August of 2021. So don't make your loved ones go through that for God's sake, please. Thank God he had life insurance though. I mean, that's very responsible at that age, honestly. My brother was like the most responsible person I know. He was just, he was a good freaking guy and life lost way too soon. But can you tell me like a childhood memory where it was like you two against the world? Well, I'll tell you my happiest childhood memory. It was snowing and we got in those, do you know, like the, what is it? You'll shoot your eye out. Those bunny suits were like, you zip up the whole thing. So my brother and I are completely zipped up in that. And then we had a, my grandparents had a meadow out, out back and we took snowballs and like they do on TV, you can roll a snowball up and make a bigger snowball. So like what started as little became so big and I'm the same height as I am then. It was taller than I was. So I remember him and I just pushing it up. And then what we did is I built a little couple stairs and then we jump up and the thing was so big that we could hop up on top and we would jump up and then the next person would jump up and then we fell off. And my mom actually came out and played with us. So this is like one of my happiest childhood memories is that we'd get up there and all three of us would be on, trying to get on it. Somebody's jumping up and we kept jumping off. It was like a cartoon. <laughs> like somebody kept falling off the end. And eventually at one point, triumphant moment where all three of us sat on this giant snowball. And that is the happiest memory that I have. But my brother and I were a team. I took care of my brother for a long time. You know, like I wasn't exactly the best sister, but I, if anyone was going to be beating him up or slapping around, it was going to be me. <laughs> Nobody else messed with him ever. I regret a lot that I wasn't there towards the end. And my mom used to always say, you know, the person who's closest related to you on the whole planet is, is your blood sibling. I really, really should have listened. <laughs> I really should have listened because my brother wasn't exactly easy to talk to. He was not a super chatty cat. He wanted to talk about cars and stuff that had no interest. He was also Republican. And if you can't tell, I'm like the most liberal person in the entire world. <laughs> the last thing I said to him was, I love you. I just wish I had 
like I, uh, with, with the saddest thing was, um, you know, he died. It was on a Friday. And later that day I said, I want you to, in my coaching, I to this group, I said, I want you to call somebody today that you love and you haven't talked to in a while. And I just want you to tell me you love them. <sighs> By that point, my brother was already dead and I didn't know it. Just don't wait. Like, don't, don't wait until tomorrow. Like do something. Cause you'll never, never regret doing something where you tell somebody you love them. Just do it. Cause there's nothing that matters more than love. I'm going to do that in your honor. <laughs> I'm so bad. Yesterday was my sister's son's birthday and I didn't even call. Well, there's always today. I really like needed this and I need more of your energy and more Lindsay infusion. I am always in your corner and please let me know how I can support you more. Really. I absolutely adore you. And I'm so very thankful for you being in my life. Thank you for being willing to talk about this. Oh my God. I'm going to continue to believe that the world is good and people are good. And I do hope for her rehabilitation and I hope and thankful for being free of hate and fear and just that it's going to be okay. I just trust that it's going to be okay. And I think that's why things end up working out a lot for me. is just the belief that things are going to be okay. I believe that they will be. <laughs> and I believe that you speaking from your heart is received well. If somebody like you can hear what I'm saying and it hits a, something deeper, Definitely. That's where I'm like, that's, that's all I can measure against. And I, um, I feel like God is like giving you the words. <laughs> I try listen really, really hard. Cause they, if you ever see me pausing and I'm like thinking, I'm usually not looking for like how to articulate it. I'm looking for the inspiration and the, the channel of what I should say. That's going to speak to someone's heart. And I want to say, you know, I, I think that a lot of people probably, like you mentioned, don't know what to say. I am so sorry about your dad and I am so sorry about your brother. And I hope that God continues to give you the strength and the blessings and that you still feel inspired to share and help other people. Well, thank you so much. I mean, that's, that's why I feel like I got my, you know, I talk about people doing their purpose and I'm like, how do, how do you do your purpose at the highest level and think about what you learn and use that to help others. That's kind of what we're all here for. Some of us recognize this and some of us don't. And I think some of us have to learn those lessons a second or third time, honestly. So I'm really thankful that I get a chance to do it. And so I'm listening. I didn't pay attention for a long time. So now I'm listening. Lindsay, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Here. Talk to you soon. Okay. Have a good night. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. All right. What'd you think of that? No holes barred uh, conversation. Very interesting. Chapter two or second interview with Lindsay. I think what you have to get out of this is that no matter what happens to her in her life, whatever adversities that she faces, she continues to escalate her spiritual connection with God. She still has an enormous confidence in humanity and bettering humanity. And maybe with all of these experiences that she's gone through, it helps her be the best of the best coaches because she's been part of it all and experiencing these adversities and turning them into positives. And isn't that what it's really all about? is that no matter what cards that you're dealt, she plays them like a champion, no matter what her hand is. We talk about playing poker. Sometimes you don't have to always have the best hand to win. The right strategy, the right timing, the right time to bluff those cards. It's more than just the actual 
physical value of the cards. It's how they're played. And uh, she does the same thing. She plays her cards to the max and she puts the time and effort into everything that she does. Sounds like she's joined us as being perfectionists. But the fact is, is that she is always looking to see the good in people. I don't know all the details with the loss of her brother, but it sounds like she was really unable to really cope, an unstable personality. And I think that your brother actually had some insight into that. And I think if you could talk to him now, he's not surprised that maybe she had an overreaction. And for someone to be stabbed so many times, she had some deep inherent problems to do that. It sounds like she was involved in something that she just couldn't really deal with. And whatever triggered it, obviously your brother was involved in that trigger and she took all of her anxiety out on him. I do appreciate that when you looked straight in her eyes, you even found that you could forgive her. We're coming up on Yom Kippur, which is also in the Jewish religion of repentance and doing shuva and asking God for forgiveness of our sins and letting us be able to appreciate another year on this earth and for you to be able to forgive her, not forget what's happened, but to be able to forgive and still give humanity that same enthusiasm is I tip my hat off to you on that. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that this story coincides with the holiday. How interesting that we connected at this time and that her message of forgiveness really resonates with what we're trying to do. Yeah, and I'll I'll be honest, some people that have done me really wrong and have done some terrible things to me, I don't know if uh, I have that same power of forgiveness, but I do believe in giving people second chances. I do believe that there's a lot of people that have done me wrong where I have given them second and third chances. But after a while, I've also learned that there's just so many times that you can be conned or be fooled when people are really not sorry for what they've done. And for you to continue to forgive or enable them is not necessarily a good result either. I think it's a balancing act between forgiveness and accountability and responsibility. And you can't do it for someone else unless they do it for themselves. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com.